on August 28, 1963, just hours after delivering his I Have a Dream speech, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. walked into the White House along with other leaders of the March on Washington. President Kennedy met with the March leaders in the Oval Office. Kennedy had not been a public supporter of this historic civil rights gathering. He feared that it might incite unrest and violence. But the day had been a peaceful success. So Philip Randolph and others urged Kennedy to champion a, quote, crusade for a civil rights bill. Kennedy redirected the focus away from dramatic action and toward developing political leverage to gain Republican support of the bill. Although JFK and MLK were both successful young leaders, and despite the fact that they shared a common cause, they were not close allies. Historians speculate that Kennedy kept his distance out of fear that their common philandering might tarnish his reputation. But their public lives were closely linked. In July 1962, King publicly urged the president to do more in the area of moral persuasion by occasionally speaking out against segregation. In June 1963, Kennedy addressed the American public on live television with what he called the Report to the American People on Civil Rights. Kennedy's report contained both explicit and implicit references to King's letter from Birmingham jail. When they met in the Oval Office after the March on Washington, just a couple months later, I imagine that both of these incredible speakers had plenty to say. But most of it went unsaid. In photos, Kennedy and King are distanced from each other. On one side of the room, the icon of a grassroots movement that changed the world. On the other, the leader of the establishment. This morning, we find Jesus in a similar situation. Jesus is in the capital city. He's made a big impression. Remember, this is early in John's gospel, just the third chapter. But in the second chapter, right from the get-go, Jesus is there in Jerusalem cleansing the temple. We're getting back to that in a second. Suffice it to say that Jesus has made a big impression. Jesus' ministry is in full swing. He's caught the attention of the establishment. He is controversial, a threat to the powers that be. And one of the religious leaders in Jerusalem sees that Jesus is special. So he goes to visit him at night, behind closed doors where he won't be seen. He won't be associated with this radical weirdo. The teacher's name is Nicodemus, which I love. It's just like a fun name, right? Nicodemus, I think it's very euphonious. But I also associate it with the mystic sage rat from the cartoon, The Secret of Nim. You guys remember that? <laughs> yeah, totally, right? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> that Nicodemus was a wise rat whose knowledge and compassion led to the deliverance of a mouse family. The other Nicodemus was pretty different. 
Before we continue, we should make note that the lectionary has taken a step, step away from Matthew's gospel, which we've been reading for the last few months. Today, we've jumped over to the gospel of John. And in John's gospel, Jesus comes into the world fully formed. There's no infancy narrative. There's very little about Jesus' early ministry. Jesus simply jumps on the scene, ready to make a change. In the second chapter, he's already cleansing the temple, as we said. This is something that happens in the, in the synoptic gospels toward the end. Um, and here at the beginning of the third chapter, Jesus is deep into his ministry. He's even meeting with heads of state. John introduces Nicodemus as a leader of the Jews. First of all, that phrase reminds us that the author is outside the Judean context. Writing to an audience who is not Judean or, quote, Jude, Jewish. Very different from Matthew's gospel. Nicodemus comes to Jesus secretly behind closed doors and says, we know that you have come from God. Interesting way to say that, right? First of all, it's interesting to make such a definitive statement in private. If I really thought that someone was a messenger from God, I don't think I'd have a problem saying that in public. But Nicodemus also does this in a way that suggests he thinks Jesus will be excited to have the support of the establishment. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. It's only true because we say it's true. It's only a good movie if it gets an Oscar. You're only a great writer or a great scientist if you get a Nobel Prize. Jesus rejects that. He doesn't need the shiny trophy, which is why he responds with this pointed retort. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. Jesus just took the wheel. He brought the conversation to a deeper level. In the process, he totally lost Nicodemus in a good chunk of all humanity for the next 2,000 years. <laughs> Born from above. Or the even more loaded other translation, perhaps more common translation, born again. Is this what your crazy aunt is talking about? The person who has all those cheesy church books, who smells like mothballs and likes the worst music on the planet simply because it talks about God? <laughs> that person whose cultish enthusiasm makes you never want to be called a Christian? <laughs> this is the passage they love? Yep. <laughs> the baggage of the born again gets packed up right here. But Jesus isn't selling mothballs. He's talking about liberation. Nicodemus, understandably, gets confused by Jesus' metaphorical language. Jesus distinguishes between the birth of flesh and the birth of spirit. To understand Jesus' explanation, we need a little vocab. The Greek word pneuma means breath, wind, spirit. It has a lot of loaded philosophical background as well. In his response, Jesus says, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So it is with everyone born of pneuma. So it is with everyone born of wind. The wind blows where it chooses. So it is with everyone born of wind. In other words, Jesus is saying, You know God when you feel God. 
You might not understand God. You can't pinpoint where the wind comes from or goes, but you can feel the wind and hear it and know it. This kingdom of God, this God love life, life is like that. You can't limit it. You can't build walls around it to contain it, to participate in it. You have to give up the limitations you construct. You have to be a new person again and again. You have to be all in. When uh, my friend and mentor, Jimmy Bartz, was heading off to seminary at, uh, at VTS at Virginia Theological Seminary, uh, he turned to his wife as they were driving out and said, what if I turn into a Jesus freak? <laughs> I think by that he meant, what if I lose my ability to relate to people? What if I become a total weirdo? That question is an important question in the life of faith. Do I put limitations on the extent to which I am willing to follow God? And when I feel like I am following God, do I know that it is genuine? In the reading from Genesis this morning, we get a taste of the ideal life of faith in the person of Abraham. Long before he is father Abraham, or he has many sons and daughters, Abraham is just another guy in Babylonia. Abram, born in the big city of Arur, moved with his dad to Haran. And out of the blue, with no previous stories about Abram's life or faith, God speaks to Abram and tells him to move to Canaan. Genesis doesn't give us much narrative here. We don't hear the conversation between Abram and his wife Sarai, later Sarah. We don't hear them struggle with having to leave their good friends, their house, the good restaurants, and the schools of Haram. All we know is that Abram goes. He listens to God, he packs up everything he has, and sets off for some place he's never been. That is immense trust. It's not the trust that says, I know exactly what will happen. It's not the trust that everything will be okay. It's the trust of a voice you know and love. The voice of love leads us to places that are dangerous. It is inherently risky to love. In loving others, we open ourselves to rejection, whether it's in friendships, in romance, or just in kindness to strangers. It takes courage to look at that potential suffering and say, let's give it a shot. For most of us, the risk is relatively small. We risk rejection or maybe a waste of time and money. If we're extending ourselves and loving people that no one loves or possibly loving our enemies, those who think differently, we also risk being judged by others. But this Jesus way always points to the cross. It points to unmerited suffering. This week I watched an interview with MLK from the day of JFK's assassination. An interviewer noted the threats that had been made on King's life and asked what it was like to live in that sort of danger. And MLK responded curiously. He said, I believe that unmerited suffering is redemptive. Unmerited suffering is redemptive. 
This is someone who has digested, lived out the nonviolent way. Just a few years later, it was JFK's brother, Bobby, who gave one of the most important speeches following MLK's assassination. In a ghetto in Indianapolis, the younger Kennedy broke the news to a crowd that had not heard it yet. Some of you might remember this speech. He quotes Aeschylus, the Greek playwright, who I actually heard, uh, wrote a little bit on the Persians and their interaction with the Greeks. Yeah, I've not read that yet, but I'm looking forward to getting into it. But he quotes Aeschylus um, from a a quote that he had actually was given from, from Jackie Kennedy in the wake of his brother's death. Aeschylus said, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. Woo! He went on to say, what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white, whether they be black. We could go on and on with that list today. But Kennedy asked, that we as a nation pray and dedicate our lo- ourselves to tame the savageness of man and make the life of this world gentle. To make gentle the life of this world. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was the victim of unmerited suffering right here in California. The life of faith, the pursuit of justice, is one of sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. In pursuit of life, our life, Jesus died. That is the way of love. It is the way of unmerited suffering. The way of death and new life, redemption and resurrection. However big or small, The deaths of the faithful play out on the pages of history. They bear the mark of the one who made all things. The awful grace of God that makes gentle the life of this world. Amen.